The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see so many people here today. Thank you, Kim, for sharing your testimony. Um, I'd like to invite all of us to read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 to, sorry, 6 to 15. Um, and you can get a Bible, and it's on page 1162 to 1163. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Sorry, my phone. Um... Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, We've been in this series now for the month of January. This is the last teaching in the series. uh, out of this, the soil of our soul. And so we started it in Nehemiah where we were just looking at this fantastic revival of how the people had come together um, for the sake of their city. They came together not just as religious people, but there was local governors involved. There were other leaders in the community and villages. And then there was ministers. And so they kind of all shared this stage because the people as a nation had somehow allowed God to reshape the soil that they were. They were now fresh and ready to, to do something more magnificent than they had seen. They had been in exile for way too long. And they were dry and parched and, and they had been fighting against one another and, and, then, and others were waging war against them. And yet they came together and the truth about their soul was evident in the way that they just approached the scriptures that were being read to them. And they had this beautiful love saying, just bring out the book. They were bringing out the scrolls of Abraham, excuse me, of Moses talking about their early origins, the will, the commitments, the, the covenant that God had made with them and the practices that we then in turn do to show him our our love and our humility and then we went on to the next week and my friend leon pinkett was here and he shared with you guys out of matthew 13 about the passage in the parable of the different soils and it's really just a miraculous parable to just sit in and marinate in and literally just say father who am i you know when the, the the rain falls on my life 
is my ground so hard that it just washes right off and none of the seeds in my soil grow? Or am I so tramped down and trampled on that the seeds don't even make it in? But yet, we can be a church that when the truth of God takes root in us, could you imagine bearing a hundredfold fruit? And that's not just in attendance. I don't want you to just think that we just want a hundred times what's in this room. But yet, let me just be honest with you. If there was a hundred times what's in this room, this city would not have the problems that it currently has. Because the discipleship of people into following after the will of God will cease murders, will stop children being hungry, will stop the homelessness issue, will stop the greed, the combativeness, the tensions. Because if we walk as Christ and everybody increases in the fact that they believe that the truth about Christ until he comes back is that we do everything out of love. And so imagine if there was just numeric, but it's not numeric. Some of you right now, you're allowing God to bear fruit in other ministries. There's people in our, in our church right now that are serving our juvenile justice system. There's people in our church that are serving the poor. There's people in our church that are serving children. And imagine a hundredfold increase of that ministry. We could turn our new $30 million juvenile prison into something more purposeful. If a hundredfold... Um, return came upon our efforts of trying to reach those that are in the hardest places. And then last week, Brandon and Emily did an incredible job walking us through Psalms 90, talking to us about the intentionality of us numbering our days and numbering the things that we do with our day and us actually thinking about what we're putting on our calendar, thinking about the things that we eat, thinking about the things that we do, thinking about the people we're spending time with. Imagine if there was some way the Spirit would remind us every day, have you checked in with me? Before we just ran after our day. And so today, I actually had a a teaching that I was planning doing out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, but on Thursday the Lord told me to go a different direction. And so I am coming from a different vantage point, but I still want to read to you what is known as a portion of the great Shema of Israel. Because if I had a feeling, if I surveyed us in the room today, a lot of us in here would say that our Christianity is rooted in Christ. Um, But Paul had some interesting teachings about us being grafted into a movement of God that was even before Jesus, that, that we were part of the nation of Israel and the promises that were given to Abraham are still the same promises. And so it's not that those are now all gone, but we're actually grafted into God's family, which the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be that family representation. And like most families, we, we lose our way. But yet we in the New Testament, because of Christ, are now brought into this great epic thing that the prophets were doing and that the apostles were now doing. And so I think that the Shema is still very relevant for us. And just imagine this. It says, Hero Israel, but what happens if it said, Hero Baltimore? I mean, I, I, I don't want to change scripture. I don't think that's my responsibility. And there's a lot of heresy that can come out of that. And a lot of things that could go wrong. But I don't think it's wrong for us to let these words sound more personal. That they're not just for a nation on the other side of the globe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Talking about the soil of our soul. Impress them on your children. 
talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk a long road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie these as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And why is he telling him to do this? Because, somebody say it louder. Say it, somebody over here say it. Thank you, all right? Somebody forgot, right? Um, but if you've been around our church family long enough to know, one of the human ailments is that we have a forgetting problem. We tend to lose what is true, right, noble, just, and we get blinded and lied to all the time. But, um, but what he's saying to them here now is, why don't you do everything you can so you don't forget? Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and your gate because you have a forgetting problem. I added that extra. And when the Lord your God brings you, listen to this, when the Lord your God brings you into land, he swore to your father, fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, listen, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. I think that's an incredibly powerful statement for the church here today, for me. Because a lot of times when the going is good, the Lord is the last thing we're thinking about. We even talked about this on Friday night. Most of the time when we think about the Lord in our life as Christians, we only want him to enhance it. We don't really want to be saved. We don't really want to feel this lavish grace of God on our life. And so our faith is a lot of times more rooted in the fact that God can help me tweak bad days, but he doesn't need to be my life. And he's saying to them, look, when everything is doing this and all these blessings are pouring out of you, don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And for us, it would be, don't forget the Lord that brought you out of your sin and made you holy. So that was going to be my sermon, but then I decided to focus on the fact that um, what does it look like for us to focus on all the blessings that they had? And so a little bit of context to the scriptures that Lee read to us today. Paul was an apostle. And if you want to know more about what an apostle does, you need to come Monday night. That's chapter 4 of Ephesians, so I'm not going to talk about it right now. Um, But Paul was an apostle in the church, and so he was responsible for multiple churches. He was caring and raising up pastors and elders in those churches. He was teaching them and discipling them, laying a foundation in them so that they could then go and build that church family together. It wasn't going to be his long-term calling to them. He was coming to help them get sure footing under them so that they could stand the forces of the world and identify the evil spirits of their city and their times so they could wage war against it. And we find Paul in the Corinthian church talking a lot. There's two letters that we have that are around them. And the, per- the verses that we read are really the summation of a story. It's really the end of something that Paul's been doing because one of the things Paul's role was was to talk consistently to those leaders about the needs in each other's churches. And this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 was about the needs of a persecuted church in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem were being attacked by the Gentiles, and they were also being attacked by other Jews that thought that they, were, um, they had lost their minds. 
They were fighting against the fact that Jesus was Lord and the temple was useless. They were fighting against the fact that Paul was saying that Jesus is the only gate. They were fighting against the fact that Jesus was saying with some exclusiveness that you don't need a temple or an idol anymore because God's grace has made you holy so he can inhabit you. And that was not a theology in that day and time that people took to kindly. So the Jerusalem church was being persecuted. They were losing their, their, their homes, their possessions. They were being totally taken over. And they were in a, 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 a place where they were literally starving to death without homes and without the ability to take care of one another. And so Paul is now on a journey through the churches where he has been serving and faithfully and he's talking to them about the needs of somebody else. And so when we look at this, he says um, at the beginning of verse 6, whoever sows sparing will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now let me just say this for the sake of a lot of you new folks to our church family. This is the first message in nearly three years that I've talked about money, all right? So just know that you just happened to come into church on that day, all right? So can somebody testify that that's true? Yes. Some of you are like, finally, he's going to talk about this. So if you doubt me, please talk to somebody that's a regular part of our church, and you know that we collect an offering, but we hardly even announce that we're collecting it, which sometimes our elders and our trustees and other people get on me about. But I'm like, you know what? I want people to give because they came prepared to give, not because they felt coerced to do so, which is what the next verse says. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And this is what I think. I want to write this back to a lot of pastors in the city. Some of you come from churches where the pastor has actually passed the offering plate two or three times. Like, I just believe somebody's holding out. (laughs) Right? You will not be blessed this week, followed by three stamps, right? All right. But God loves a cheerful giver, does he not? Listen, and if you've ever been one, if you've ever been a cheerful giver, you never want to stop. Because you actually get more out of giving than you get out of taking. It is, a, it is life-giving to be a cheerful giver. But here's a promise that it was said to the nation of Israel, that was said to all the prophets, that's been said through the Gospels, through Christ, and through the early church. God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things and in all times, having all that you need, in all you, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, this is from Psalms, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. There's quite a debate in our country right now about the poor, by the way. But I would love for God to say to our church, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift through you. So this goes back to actually 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you want to turn back in your Bibles or, or hit the little button that changes the page for you, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Paul is now talking not to the Corinthian church, but to the church in Macedonia. So he's on this progression. Now listen to what's happening here. And now, brothers and sisters, but here's my point. I want you to either identify with the Corinthian church or the Macedonian church today, or the Jerusalem church. Some of you in here need to be receiving the blessings of our church family. Some of us in here are going through an incredible amount of persecution, and others of us right now, life is good. 
Corinthian church, good. Macedonian church, terrible. Let's read. And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, that is in reference to the Father loving us so much that Jesus made a way. Jesus is the in and through to all of God's promises. That's the lavish grace of God, something we didn't earn or deserve, but he just chose to lavish it on us. In the midst of a very severe trial, talking to them, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, that's not generally a sentence that we would imagine. It's generally the stock market was going well, I was full of joy, and so I was able to be extremely generous. Or our company did really well, we got a good end-of-the-year bonus, so now I can be extremely generous. The Macedonian church wasn't going through that. The Macedonian church was under great persecution. In the midst of their severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pled with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So here, let me just imagine. This is what I feel like Paul was going through right now with these people. I imagine they were bringing him gifts and he was beginning to see how much it was in the condition of their church and where the people were emotionally and persecution and hunger. And he was seeing all this money coming in. And I believe at some point he was saying to them, okay, okay, that's enough. Wow, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, are you sure? This, is, this doesn't make sense based upon what I know about your church. This is the tone behind what Paul is saying to the church in Macedonia. And so he goes on to say this. So I urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to, be, to bring also to completion the acts of grace on your part. But since you excel in every... Sorry, I, I, my page turned. Um, yeah, there we go. Okay, but since you excel in everything, talking to the Corinthian church now, not the Macedonian church. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's sending Titus to them. That's what it's saying. Now, this is the Corinthians. Listen to them. Tell me if you can identify with this right now. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love that you have kindled, that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. There's a story we read last night out of Luke 7. I'd like for you, if you're taking notes in your journals, and by the way, there are green journals through this period of time leading up to Easter that we'd love for you to use. But I would love for you to go back and read the story of the woman that wept over Jesus' feet and repeatedly kissed them, Luke 7. She wept repeatedly over Jesus' feet because she was called a great sinner. And she was aware that she was a great sinner. So her sin and her condition, hearing about the lavish love of God through Christ, caused her to weep so much that she wept over Jesus' feet, wiped it with her hair, and then kept kissing them throughout the whole meal. And at the very end, the Pharisee says in his, to himself, which I think is really funny because he's having a conversation with himself, but Jesus hears it. And so he says to Simon, 
if somebody owes somebody 500 and somebody owes somebody 50, the same person 50, and that same person forgives both of them, which one's more grateful? I believe that a lot of us in this room really don't think we're that bad of sinners. We don't really think that God had to die for us because I'm okay. We are all sinners in desperate need of the loving grace of God. And so Paul is telling this Corinthian church, look, you're excelling in everything. You're excelling in the ways that you treat one another and all of this, but I want you to excel in giving as well. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So what he's saying is, is let me just give you the gospel story here just a moment. Jesus came, died to rescue us so that we can have access to his inheritance. I'm gauging by your expression that that doesn't really set home because we are heirs to everything Christ has in heaven for eternity. That is a, a, a and I think it's shallow to say this, but for all eternity, um, we won't lack for anything. Matter of fact, we're going to live a lavish day of life every day. We won't have tension. We're going to be in love with the people around us. We're not going to harm one another. We're going to encourage one another because we're going to be in the intimate embrace of a king that knows every pain that we've ever experienced, and he's going to be guiding us. So let me just say this. Do you not know that you have an inheritance? You have an inheritance. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the, des- the desire to do so. So he's complimenting them from an offering he came by and collected last year. Now finish the work, he says to them, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Now we all aren't in here equal, like we all don't make the same income in this room. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now listen, that brings us back to the story of the widow with two pennies. When we bring an offering, the Lord is the one that determines whether it's pleasing. I don't believe there's anybody in this church we've ever gone to saying, I think your job is better than what you give to the church. I actually know of a church in town that actually asks all of its members to turn in a copy of their W-2. Do you guys want us to add that to our covenant? (laughs) The president first, right? Um, All right, so here we go. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. I mean, really, heaven's going to be equal. So why can't God's will be done here on earth? But it's not legislated, it's the church. I want you guys to know this. Yes, we need to be proactive in government, and I want you to continue to do the good work that you've been doing. But I don't care what our government does, because when Paul was talking to the church in Corinth, the Christians and the people in those cities were taxed a lot higher than we are. 
They were under a lot more persecution than we are, and they didn't go around saying, well, let's just put it on everybody else to care for those. The church should be leading the way in the care of our children and the people in our communities. It should not be on us to say, well, the government should do it. Yes, we want the government to use our tax dollars well. That's not what I'm saying. That's a whole different discussion. Let's leave them out of this scenario for a minute, and let's just have an accountability around the church. The church was asked by God to care for those that don't have. He even goes on and shares parables about don't build two silos. And when you did it to the least of these, you were doing it to me. And so don't tell me that that Jesus didn't have an incredible passion to set an example for how you and I are to live. And we all have different levels of that, so it hits us at different ways. But yet this passage is about people, no matter where you are, being generous. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed and that there might be equality. At this present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. So I think a lot of us give, but we hold a lot back because we don't want to be needy. But then we deny our brothers and sisters the opportunity of helping us out when we're in need. And so we hold on to way too much money for a rainy day or a bad time because we think that I need to have that for the rainy day or the bad time, but then you're denying what God's supposed to be doing in the church. Why is it okay for people right now in our church to be in a rainy day and having a bad time? When maybe our generosity towards them is going to change their situation, and when we have a rainy day or a bad time, they're going to come to our need, and we'll get a chance to feel what it's like to have somebody do something for us that's beyond our wildest imagination. I actually shared this story last night. It was in a commentary I was reading by N.T. Wright prepping for Ephesians, but there was actually a famous writer in England that his book became a movie, and, and it was all about family and animals, which I think many of you would enjoy. But I, if you want to know what it is, I'll share with you later. But the end of the story was that he was taking his wife out to dinner to celebrate, and somewhere along the way lost his wallet, sat down, ate the entire meal, then realized when the bill came that he didn't have his wallet. But when the bill came, his producer back at the office knew where he was going and had called to say, your bill is paid. And he didn't know that. Like the producer didn't know he lost his wallet along the way. And that very successful person got a chance to taste what it feels like to be a recipient of generosity. I don't know why we fear being the recipients of other people's generosity. And I also don't know why we fear the bad day. Because the Lord said he's going to be with us today and he's going to be with us tomorrow. And he's also going to be the rock upon uh, where our feet can stand, where when the storms come, we're not going to be shaken. So now turning back to Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 5, there is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help. Like, I almost sense Paul being a little sarcastic. Like in the middle of the letter, he's like, I know you know this. But I also know that as a leader, he's saying to them, I know you forget this. And so he's saying to them, I know that that you know all about serving the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. So their testimony actually inspired another church. 
to be ready to move into action. But I am sending my brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. And so this is what I love about this, is he's telling them, look, I've been talking really good about you, and if you don't come through, I'm gonna, this, it's going to look really bad. Because I've been telling everybody about your generosity and your love, but then what if I show up and you don't have anything to give or you give reluctantly, then what is that going to look like for his kingdom? And he goes on to say, for if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance. He hasn't gotten there yet. He's coming. And finish the arrangements for this generous gift you had promised. Then it would be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. And so the whole premise of this being a cheerful giver is based upon a story of a church that was going through a hard time a church that was being persecuted and struggling through poverty, collecting an offering for another church that was struggling, and a church that had everything. And Paul knew that and was complimenting them, and he's saying, I want you now to grow, and I want you now to be a cheerful giver. I want you to do it again, basically. He's like, you've tasted it once. Why not do it again? I struggle with this because so many pastors have misrepresented. Um. I can tell you right now that we've identified like five children's programs that are in the city that because they're not sponsored by major organizations are going to struggle this summer. Um, they work um, all-day programs for children when school breaks, and they give them breakfast, lunch, and many times send them home dinner, and they take care of them all day long, but they're underfunded because they aren't tied to major government money or other things. So last year, we had the capacity to send $6,000 to those different organizations to help them. But this summer, we want to be able to give out $15,000. But we also have a school to build in Guatemala. It's going to cost about $47,000, but there's going to be about four churches that are going to contribute to that, which I'm thankful for. Um, But our portion of that really is going to be about $15,000. And so could we set a date and just imagine I'm just coming by and we have $30,000 sitting here on a Sunday? Is that unrealistic? Could we not do that? I mean, we've had moments in the past where we've done incredible things. Why can't we just go ahead and set a date, collect the money, and then just go ahead and help the children of our city and the children in Guatemala? I mean, there are obvious needs there. Yes, there are obvious needs in other places around the world. And many of you give to those places. But from your pastor to you, we feel a sense of calling to obedience to our city and to Puerto de Golfe, Guatemala right now. We need to own that. And I believe we could set something out in front of us that could be big. So I'm not sure if we'll maybe collect this at Easter. We might just say we're going to collect a special offering on Easter, and our target goal is $30,000. I don't know if that's going to happen. I haven't gotten it approved by the other elders yet. So I'm telling you, hopefully that I don't get chastised by them in the elders meeting on Thursday. But yet, here's what I'm saying to us as a church. I believe our elders want us to be generous. And so I don't feel like it's going to be a point of contention. It's going to be a point of celebration. But here's one other thing that I haven't cleared by them. But it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission has been my motto. Um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. That is not in the scriptures. It was edited out. Um, 
But here's, here's the other thing. This is what I would say. If you do plan to give to that, and you don't feel at peace in your life through the power of God's Holy Spirit, we will give you your money back. This is what we're saying to you. If you want to test the faithfulness of what we're talking to you about here today, if you want to drink from the generosity of God, I'm going to do something that is not necessarily biblical, but I feel like we could say to you with confidence, because I testify to this, my family has had the opportunity to be exceptionally generous to certain families, but I'm also living in a house in Baltimore City at the exceptional generosity of another family that left our city and sold us their home for over $120,000 less than, than they paid for it because they wanted to set it at a price my family could afford to buy it. I am a testimony of generosity in living and also in generosity in receiving. And I have to tell you, it's pretty sweet. And so I'm going to ask you as a church... Would you please consider, would you sit with the Lord? Would you talk to the Lord? Would you do those things? And so a pastor that I've come to greatly respect is Pastor Brady Boyd, who's out at New Life Church. And he actually posted something this week. And so I just want to read his words to you about three categories, because I want you to kind of have it as a way. He says it in such gentleness and compassion, by the way. It's really hard to talk about people's money and not feel ultimately offended by every word that comes out. And so if you have been offended here today, no, it's not been my heart to offend. I feel like everything I've said to you has literally been read right out of the Bible. If it's not making sense, we just literally read two chapters of the Bible to you this morning. So if you're offended, I don't want you to be offended by me. But here's where he starts. He has a category, what he calls tippers. These people give the leftovers of their money. This level requires little faith and is motivated primarily by guilt or duty. They are typically inconsistent, giving only when prompted by a pastor at a church or by an appeal on social media. They, tippers also, if they have money, they will give a portion, but the amount never stretches them out of their comfort zone and always makes sense. That's sort of what Kim's testimony was talking about here just a minute ago. They love the idea of giving, but are often ill-prepared to give. That would be a category of tippers. I don't know if that, if, that, if that definition in many ways maybe summarizes a category you might fall into. The next category, tithers. These people have set aside the first 10% of their income to give to the local church. This is a huge step for the first level because some faith now enters the question. The next slide. These people believe that God can do more with the remaining 90% if they're willing to give the first. Tithers typically give consistently and seldom have to be prompted or motivated to give. The tithers, these are people who have disciplined themselves to live with less money than they make, and they have made some sacrifices to get to this place of generosity, which shows a great deal of maturity. Next slide. The next slide is a different group, extravagant givers. While still tithing, they give even more to the ministries, single parents, missionaries, and struggling neighbors. These people are super budget conscious, intentionally living below their means and setting aside money now, knowing that they will have lots of chances to give later. They are attracted to bold vision, are never offended by being asked to give because they see it as a privilege and as worship. They carry the same faith as the widow seen by Jesus in the temple, giving everything, and they completely believe that God owns it all, and they are just stewards. They are prayerful and wise about their giving, 
but will not hesitate to give large percentages if God directs. This group prefers anonymity and will ask a lot of really good questions because they need details. We love that. And they take their time getting to know ministry leaders and only give when they see high levels of accountability and integrity. So are you in that category? Tipper, tither, extravagant giver. If you're in the extravagant giver conversation, can we schedule a meeting? (laughs) Because I want you to trust that every penny you give is going for God's will to be done and God's kingdom to come in Baltimore as it is in heaven. If you are a tither, I thank you for being disciplined and very analytical and like, yes, my 10% is all the Lord requires. I just want to tell you that is not biblical. Tithing is a great discipline, but it is not necessarily the way that the early church was taught. Right? I want you guys to understand that. It is a great discipline. It is a great first step, as Brady talked about in that quote. But generosity was the standard in the early church. I just want to share a quick story with you, and I don't want to get it all wrong. Actually, I'm going to share two, because I think it's important. Um, I know some of you don't like Hershey chocolate uh, for a lot of different reasons, but I've come to respect the family that started the Hershey company. A lot of their movement happened during the Depression, and one of the stories that came out of the Hershey family was a day when I, I, one of his managers on a construction site showed up with a tractor, and the manager said to him, this tractor will do the work of a hundred men. And without hesitation, the testimony is that William Hershey looked at the manager and said, sell the tractor and hire a hundred men. Because he didn't want the people in his community to suffer during the Depression. I also read a story when I was in college Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Caterpillar Tractor Company. It's the yellow tractors you see along the interstate many times making holes and us yelling at them because they're making highway travel too congested. But upon the owner of the Caterpillar Caterpillar Tractor Company's funeral and the will was being read and the children were being exposed, they found out that their dad was a reverse tither. He had given away for his entire life 90% of his income and was only living on 10%. Now, mind you, some of you are like, yeah, but he was making millions of dollars, so I could live pretty comfortably on 200 grand a year. But here's the deal, right? But here's the deal. Let's check your heart. If you had 20 million, would you live on 200 grand? Would that be what you were known by? Would you be like, yep, you know what, this is enough. Everything above this is going to others because I want to make sure that the Lord uses me to bring his daily bread, to bring his... Because again, we are God's hands and feet in this world, the church. And God loves on the children that he loves through his church. We can't sit back and say, well, God, you better love on that person. He's saying, I've asked you to do it. That's your responsibility to go and touch them in my name. So here's the closing question that I'd like for you to sit on. And it's pretty simple. What is the Holy Spirit leading you to do today? What, is, what about what I've said is the Holy Spirit leading you to do with your money? I'm actually feeling led, too, to offer a second question. If you've been offended by what I've said, Why is it so offensive? 
because there's another slide that I didn't, I skipped over that Josie typed out for me. Because here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings revelation. If what I said to you is true, he is going to reveal it to you. If what I said to you today is from God, he's going to give you the wisdom now know what to do. And if the Holy Spirit is a part of us, he, we have access to a power that is beyond our wildest imagination, and we haven't even tapped into it. And so today I just want to encourage us. What is the Holy Spirit leading us to do? Let me pray for you. Father, I come to you right now in Christ's name, and I just ask that your Spirit would confirm would convict if my words were wrong, would you change them? Father, even if somebody was offended by my little comment about the president, Lord, I ask right now that you would just draw that in and not let it detract from the truth of today. Father, we want to pray for our leaders. We ask that they bring your will in your way to our nation and all the way down to our communities. We want them to be successful. We want them to be a, um, a representation of your will and your way. So, Father, would you guide them, empower them, teach them, train them. But, Lord, we also have a sin issue and we're fighting against, and we need your spirit to move in us. So, Father, would your spirit bring revelation to our church family today based upon what we taught? Lord, would your spirit bring wisdom, and would your spirit bring power? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.